This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording today is Friday, January 21st, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from the good ship, bookriot.com. Great website. Uh, Rebecca, today we're going to try for, we'll see how long we can keep the steam under this particular initiative of reading front list and talking about front list. We're going to do that in a little bit too. But speaking of front list, a lot of the books we will be reading and talking about, oh, for however long we can keep this up, we talked about on our winter draft, which we're doing another pay for special bonus episode. It's available at bookriot.com slash winter draft. You can get it as a, as a special RSS feed where you can drop the the file into your podcast catcher of choice. Um, you can also get it as a downloadable MP3, no DRM or anything like that, and play it in the way that you can play an arbitrary audio file, which on a phone or a tablet, frankly, is harder than it should be. I'll say that, yes, Apple, to you guys out there. I don't know why you can't press play and have, have something work easily. It seems like something that... In iTunes, you used to be able to... I'm, now I'm a thousand <laughs> years old, where I'm talking about old technology, but you used to be able to do this. It wasn't you know, as hard. You could put it on an iPod, you could put an MP3 on an iPod and name it and it would play. How you do that now on an iPhone? I have no idea. I mean, in fairness to Apple, they don't have much incentive to make it easy for you to bring in your own MP3s when what they really want is for you to sell your bonus content directly through them. Those two trillion dollars don't make themselves is what you're saying. I'm not saying I feel bad for Apple. I just, you know, no. get it. I'm not sure it's in fairness. I think it's <laughs> rational to do what they're doing. I don't like it. It's rational, though. Bookriot.com slash winter draft. Also, check out Adaptation Nation. Uh, by the time this is out, it will be out, so it's not really a spoiler, but um, Macbeth, the tragedy of Macbeth, the Scottish play, for those of you in the theater world, we had a great time. Sharifa, Vanessa, Jen Northington, and I were all on that. The first time I've ever done a four-header podcast. That's uh, a so it was wild big and dynamic. Woolly. So it was me and the three witches over there on the uh, Macbeth. We had a really good time. It's a good. It's a good adaptation. I was going uh, to I ask. Say. I haven't watched it yet, so I was going to ask what your you know overall take was. It, it's good. Um, without doing the whole hour and a half I just did yesterday, mm-hmm. I'll say Macbeth is hard to do, and a lot of people think it's an impossible role to play for a variety of reasons. Denzel is very good and very likable. It's also really interesting, but the star of the show is the witch played by Catherine Hunter, mm. who is a contortionist. Oh. Um, she played Mrs. Fig in the uh, Harry Potter series. That's probably where most people may have seen her face before, but has an unbelievable voice. But she does stuff with her body that looks unnatural. And so it adds, uh, the very opening scene is her, like, on a beach, like, under a like an old woolen wet blanket in the sand, and she basically like unpacks herself out of it while oh, she's wow. giving the speech. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> whoa. So insofar as it's possible to upstage Denzel as Macbeth and Frances McDormand as the Lady Macbeth, which you wouldn't think is possible. I think she does it a little bit. That's a heat um, check right there. That's yeah, amazing. it's a very witch forward production uh, of Macbeth. <laughs> Which forward productions could be our new log line for Book yeah. Riot also. And for those of you, I don't know out there, we talked about on the show, I don't know if people are scared of watching Shakespeare, reading Shakespeare. I know I. it is difficult. It's the most difficult popular entertainment, right? I mean, Shakespeare is. Anything more difficult is unpopular. Anything more popular is less difficult. Um, but like we said in, about Romeo and Juliet is you can get the gist and like 25% of the words and still have a good time. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's possible. I think and so, and we can, we'll can. we talk about it more, I'm sure, when we get into the bottom half of the show and we talk about mm. Station Eleven, but Station Eleven makes it really evident that you can watch Shakespeare right. in a variety of situations without a deep Shakespeare background, mm. and it can be beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, Macbeth is the shortest of the tragedies. The runtime of the movie, without credits, is only like 130 minutes, so mm. it's actually pretty quick, and it goes fast. It's shot in black and white. It looks gorgeous on modern televisions, for sure. Um with with good contrast ratios. Um, yeah, and then, you know, if you want to hear a lot more about the play Macbeth and then our thoughts, feelings, um, we all liked it. We all liked it. So go check that out. That's Adaptation Nation. It's available wherever you get your podcatchers. All right, let's do our f- first sponsor break, and then we'll talk about some books. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. 
So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. I only know you're doing this because you put it in Slack as a random fact, but you're, are you listening to the Clusterman right now? Oh, is no, that I what read you're it. Current? I you read it. it. You read, read it in print galley. and you mm-hmm. got a galley. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like the fancy, the fancy girl you are. You have a galley. <laughs> I mean, of, a digital of galley. I don't like. Yeah. I didn't get like yeah. a customized personal mailing or anything. Well, you have been carrying the torch against paper galleys. <laughs> for you were on the so vanguard long. of this. It was you like you what? and like one other person for a long time. I know, and I feel very vindicated. I was just telling Bob last week. We're cleaning off the bookshelves in our living room to prepare for an eventual move and getting rid of a bunch of books I've been schlepping around for like twenty, literally twenty years of life that I don't mm. need anymore. Anymore. So my front room of our house is filled with paper bags that are going to make their way to Goodwill and local women's shelters. And I was looking at them. The, oop, I was looking at them the other day, and I was like, you know, it's wild. I used to get this many books that I didn't want in the mail every yes. month, and just that amount of waste drove me bananas. So I'm thrilled that digital galleys have had a glow up, at least in terms of people being open to them and excited about them. Uh, thanks to COVID preventing the sending out of them for a mm. while. Um, but Should yeah. we do a little backstage stuff? Because this is something that we know about and maybe some people do, but people might be interested. If I, you know, this is the kind of thing I would have liked as a 24 year old to know how this works, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? How digital galleys, how this things work. So, well, well, you take away. You do this way sure. more than I do. So take take us through how this is working well, right now on the digital gallery. Yeah, side. so there are a couple websites uh, where publishers upload their catalogs. And these were intended originally, or at least the first one, Edelweiss, was intended for publishers to be able to make their catalogs digitally available, primarily to booksellers and librarians, so that when they went to buy books for their stores or to put on their library shelves, they could browse really easily. If they had a sales rep that was talking with them, the sales sales rep could leave notes in those catalogs for them, etc. When galleys became available digitally, and those are usually through either PDF or EPUB files, publishers started making those available for some titles through these services. Again, with the primary intention of you own a bookstore or you're the buyer for a bookstore. Don't Do you want to read this new novel and decide that you love it and then you can stock it on your shelf and make it your big hand sell of the year or whatever? Click here and you can download it. Um, and that process used to be really clunky. Um, getting EPUBs onto things used to be really clunky. Now you can even even import 
EPUB and Kindle, uh, EPUB and PDF files into the Kindle reading app. You can import them into Kobo or whatever the reading app you're using. It's gotten much simpler. Um, and so most of the publishers have either you can get like if you're in the if you're in the business, um, or if you are a librarian or a bookseller, you can get like whitelisted for particular publishers or particular imprints galleys, which means you just have access to download them. You, it's a one-click access situation, mm. uh, or you can click the request button and tell them a little bit about yourself and why they should give you access to their digital galleys. And um, most of the time, they will. Someone over there <laughs> reads them and says yes. Uh, and then there's a service called NetGalley that's a little more consumer facing. A little, it was a little more blogger facing when book blogging is an is individual that right? thing. I, didn't re- I don't have a good sense of the Coke versus Pepsi war between Edelweiss yeah, and I, NetGalley. I don't have a feel for it. I think that NetGalley, uh, NetGalley has a much less like wholesale, much less of a wholesale mm-hmm. function than Edelweiss does. Um, and I think a lot of publishers had the intention, at least my experience, is they had the intention or the desire to separate it and have like, if you're a bookstore, you can use Edelweiss. And if you're a blogger, you can use NetGalley. And this is how we will separate who we give access to these files to. But I think in practice, that separation didn't really occur, at least if you were in Edelweiss sort of in the earlier day. Like if you were Mm -hmm. blogging back when we started blogging in 2008 or 2010. um, But that is how that works. So what I do is when I'm researching upcoming titles for our draft shows, um, I keep an, a tab open for Edelweiss. And if I find something that I think I'm going to be interested in, I just download the galley right then. Or in the case that I need to request it, I request it. And those get sucked into my reading app on my iPad. Do you ever browse Edelweiss um you know, like a bookstore and just kind of walk through? Or do you come like a heat-seeking missile for the title you want? (laughs) I come like a heat-seeking missile. But if I'm browsing catalogs for like what's coming out soon that might be interesting, it kind of serves both purposes. It can feel like browsing the bookstore. Oh, I didn't know there was... I just Mm. this morning, so it's not... I'm not ready for Frontless Corner on it, but I just started Jonathan Evison's new novel. Ah, Um, Which I heard is good. Yes, I've heard it's really good. And I had downloaded it a couple months ago, Mm. but I, I didn't know that it was coming out until I came across it on a stroll through Edelweiss. And was like, oh, Jonathan Evison, I like him. Let me download this. Often when we are recording those drafts, if you mention a title that I'm excited about that I didn't know was coming until you're, until the words were coming out of your mouth, I'm like right. muting myself and downloading the galley while you're still <laughs> giving the pitch for it. Yes. Thank you for listening completely to my thoughts and feelings. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's great. I'm so great excited. I have to act immediately, Jeff. There you go. That's a girl right. can multitask. Uh, and, and the browsing experience on Edelweiss and NetGalley is so good that we built the new release index for <laughs> BookRite <laughs> Insiders. It is a fire hose. It's not a great browsing experience. It's a no. fire hose of information. There are different filters, but like it is clear that this was really intended for the purpose of you've got a meeting with your rep from HMH next week to decide which books to buy in for your bookstore. And you've probably looked through the paper catalog and they have probably sent you emails about other things. And this is just your last stop on deciding how many you want of which title. It's very good if you're a heat-seeking missile, right? Mm -hmm. It's also very good if you browse by catalog from a buying situation or any other kind of situation. Anything that aren't those two use cases that are a disaster, which most of us consumers slash prosumers fall into. I am interested in the books I am interested in. Ain't no filter for that in Edelweiss, right? (laughs) Right. And so, you know, what does that mean? How do you do it? I, when I do the winter drafts, I usually just go through the front list catalogs of like the big, well, four or five, however Mm -hmm. we're counting those now. I do Norton. I do a few others. But they have catalogs for for all kinds of books, like you know, you're doing cookbooks and academic presses. Like the task Edelweiss has to do almost makes it impossible to be bra- for browsing for funsies, unless you're lib, which you just yeah. like you just like plug into the matrix and you know learn kung fu that way. Um, but for the, most of us, it's very difficult to do. Though sometimes it can be better than other. I actually kind of like just getting the PDF of a catalog from like front, uh, Flatiron or something mm. like that. Um, that just to browse is, is pretty interesting. You get a little bit more. The other stuff, the metadata is almost as interesting as actually being able to get the text for me. You know, what's the marketing plan look like? Uh-huh. The print runs, you know, I love the print run number. I <laughs> love, do the, love print the print run, run, run number. I do love the print run number. It's I don't think I've ever actually connected it to outcomes. I'm not sure it's predictive <laughs> at all. No. But when you don't have any data, you know, any port in and a storm. 
Again, they include comp titles, so you yes. can see how the publisher is trying to position this, which titles they're comparing it to. And sometimes yeah. that's like, oh, very exciting. And sometimes it is very telling and like, that's not going to happen. But it's cute that you think so. Kind of way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So shout to Edelweiss. Like, you know, it's the worst tool except for all the others. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really, I'm sympathetic to the problem they have. The UI and UX and other stuff is beyond, beside the point here. But it's so much and trying to be so many things to so many different kinds of people that it's almost nothing to me. I So when I, when I come to find, I don't actually request them that often. Um, I guess the other thing to say is most things are available except for the Shroud of Turin titles, you know, every yes. now and again, but most things are available um, eventually. So there is very little like no one can see this beforehand stuff going on unless you're, what, Obama, I guess? Uh, stuff like that. If you're yeah. Obama or like an Oprah title, usually they like once they know that a book is going to get the Oprah thing, they will take down the Edelweiss listing and That's it becomes right. like unnamed Oprah selection. And the of course, the galley then goes away. Do we know why they do that? Why do they do that? Uh, because I don't books, understand this. It's because bookstores need to be able to buy it. They need to be able to like, oh, we're going to want to sell the Oprah title. Or I don't I don't think the Reese titles are secrets in catalogs because those usually get no. announced after publication. But they aren't they aren't, The bookstores aren't allowed to know the Oprah titles before anybody else. So you just have to go on faith of like, we're going to sell a case of the Oprah title. And then when the box arrives in your bookstore, it comes with tape that's like, this is embargoed. Don't open it until April 12th or whatever. And when you open it on whatever day you do, whether you follow the embargo or not, that's when you see what the title is. Is that so there's like maximum impact when the announcement is made? So not, we're announcing it and you can buy it today. Whereas this trickling mm-hmm. out of you know, oh, we know what it's going to be. This, we would write a story. We would cover it on the show, you know, two months beforehand. And, I, I every, and then so. people can't go by it and that frustrates everyone. I, I think it's both for sense. maximum impact and also just an artifact of old publishing where yeah. embargoed, that was what you did for highly anticipated books was embargo them so that no one could sell them or even review them or talk about them early. Yeah. And that happens now for mostly like big political memoirs get not just no galleys, but they get embargoed where nobody got an early copy and no right. one is supposed to sell those books before a particular date. I can't remember whose memoir it was sometime in the last like five years. I think it was somebody at the either the Times or the Washington Post like broke a story 24 hours before one of the book's on sale date because they were like at JFK and the Hudson so, News. Yeah, it might have been the Michael Wolf book, if I maybe remember yeah the Hudson News or like or whatever the you know bookstore there is yep. had put the books out early and so they like snagged it and read it and posted a bunch of quotes before anybody else had coverage. Which so is, similar same idea. If there's going to be a big media hit for it, yes, we want people to be able right. to buy the book when mm-hmm. they hear about it. Where if they hear that. Here's some wild anecdote about Eric Trump Jr. that, you know, gets a bunch of hits on the Washington Post dot com. Yeah. And people are like, wait, the book's not out for two weeks. Exactly. And then they forget about yeah. it and they don't care. Mm-hmm. It, it makes sense. It's it's a weird it is a weird artifact for sure. And frankly, for my purposes, something being an Oprah or Reese pick is not determined of me reading it. So from a galley point of view, it, it doesn't really matter. So we can get most of what we want. Rebecca has a she she you have a kind of a, a grandmothered in magic white labeled account that some of us hermit crab into from yes. time to time. So we dare not speak its name because we don't want anyone <laughs> looking and poking at it. So it's like it's like the secret backdoor key. <laughs> Yeah. To, to most of the things on there. I it's used to know some now. people with some access to some things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> CEObookride.com, it's cool. It's fine to deny my request for the gallery. It makes sense. That seems rational I, to me. Every now and then, I'm not proud of this, but every now and then I get turned down for a title I've requested and I email someone I know at that imprint ah, to be like, there you go. not sure how this happened, <laughs> which is as close as I get to like allowing myself to be like, do you know who I am? Yeah. Now I just get pettily vindictive, like I'm never talking about your book again. Not reading it, not picking it in a draft. I will say I have some, I understand how it happens more now because I think the approval lists get like turned over or maybe like the back end of Edelweiss gets updated and it loses features. And then often it's like newer folks to the company are the ones tasked with approving those. And so like they literally might not know who we are or they just are told to like only approve booksellers or whatever um but usually you can if you work in the industry usually you can get your access to some galley at some point if you're willing to be like hi i would really like to read this and i don't know why you're in turn denied me. i'd rather be aggrieved than improved rebecca <laughs> right now 
<laughs> so, you know, in this winter moment yes. of weather and of my soul, I, I, I'm sitting there with you too. Yeah. Anyway, so there's that's how this happens. So, and again, the lead time for when they're available can vary quite wildly. It's wild. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's not available um, until a couple months. Sometimes you can get mm-hmm. a year ahead of time. And then they turn off the request once you get into like the, as you approach, uh, as you approach departure, you got to yep. turn off your phones kind of situation with the galleys, um, which I think they don't want to cannibalize sales, I think is what's happening there. I'm mm-hmm. never really sure about this. But anyway, enough of that. So you had the Klosterman, you finished it. I did. And? I liked it. I think that I need oh, to look at it. I liked it. No, no, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. I think I need to look at it in print because it was... Mm. It was hard to tell in the digital galley, like how the book was really supposed to be broken into sections. And I think I might have missed some like useful format and styling things. But in oh, terms of. Oh, that's a good point about digital galleys. Yeah. The, the formatting can be wonky. Right. It's like, not done. They haven't tweaked it for digital reading exactly. So that is a. Anything that's illustrated or has a lot of sections, it can be disconcerting. It can it's not, be. It's not and they're like. Way. There were just a couple different kinds of chapter headings, and then there were like subheads, but it wasn't clear to me like, oh, is this chapter all about this one theme of things? And then there's going to be stuff nested inside it. So that's, I mean, that's just a format, an artifact Mm -hmm. of the format, I think, being, and I would bet the ebook version, it is much clearer. But the digital galley is like, you're not reading a Microsoft Word document, but it's only a couple steps up from that most of the time. (laughs) This is a utilitarian item that's just intended to be like, get familiar with this book so you can put it in your bookstore, um, or now so you can review it. So I think that was a challenge. And then it was hard to like, literally get a handle on here's what's coming up or here are how these topics nest together. But I, I really did like it. It was very wide ranging. He did music. So you got like Tupac and Biggie. You got some of the other stuff that happened in big 90s music culture. He talked some about TV, about friends and how that became such a big deal, what it represented. There was interesting stuff about like the 92 election and Ross Perot and how that was different when, from when Ralph Nader ran and how that was also different from other third party kinds of situations. What's going on in the world at these particular times? He wrote about the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill stuff and how differently that would have been responded to if it had happened, you know, in the late 2000 teens than if it happened, then when it really did happen. He really was very wide ranging and I think took a useful and interesting perspective on what made the 90s what they were in a way that we didn't realize at the time was right before the internet changed the ways that we interact, Mm. the kind of information that we can get, the quantity of information that we can get, the way that messaging works, the way that news worked then, what television was like. You know, he, he spends some time talking about like, you know, the millions of viewers that the like seventeenth ranked sitcom on CBS could get That's on a Wednesday so night. Hard. That is so. <laughs> and, it's so hard to. It's so hard to communicate. Yeah, like everyone could talk about Seinfeld because everyone watched Seinfeld last yes, night. Yes, exactly. And what and how impossible that is to communicate. Especially for, I think, our generation, because we're the folks who remember our lives, like we're young and we remember, young enough that we remember our lives before this technology, but we were also young enough when the technology came out to really engage with it. And a lot of folks, the way that Klosterman divides it up is a lot of folks in the older generations were old enough when the internet really started developing to either not have to engage with it at all or to be able to really engage with it minimally. Like I use it to answer my email and that's all, but there's something out in the world called TikTok, maybe. Um, And so I found it, I did feel very seen by the way that he talked about what it was to be somebody who was born in like the late 70s or early 80s, and then coming of like cultural consciousness in the 90s, watching how technology started to be developed, and watching culture and how subcultures developed around things. But you really, it really was the last time that you could have like, an album that, you know, millions of people bought on the day that it came out and we're all listening to and talking about together or the finale of a tv show where like i can't remember i think it was one of the the episode of dallas where they revealed who shot jr it was like one third of all u.s households were watching that and things are wild number right like 
things are just so much more fractured now that that's impossible to do and almost impossible to imagine. And I thought he did a nice job of positioning sort of what the 90s mean now that we are far enough away from them to take a look. Honestly, the hardest part about reading it was realizing that the 90s are far enough in the past that we can take this kind of look. I know. Longer view. Yeah. And it's also striking that, you know, this the era of mass culture was actually pretty short because you needed mass media, right? Before Mm -hmm. radio, essentially, you had books and books for writers. They were expensive, that you had to be literate, you had to be able to buy them. You know, there was a time when Charles Dickens came to America, he was met at the dock by a throng of people, right? right? That was what mass culture looked like then. But even that was relatively sore. But really, you only get, I guess you start with the jazz age, you get into radio, Amos and Andy, Mm -hmm. movies, probably probably even more so. I think the other thing that's hard to know about the the 90s is that I was actually more fractured than the 50s when there were three TV stations, right? Because we had cable, right? We had cable and there were some other things that you can do or VHS, but like... It was the end of the monoculture, but even it was showing its Mm -hmm. fragmentation, but it was nothing compared to the the fall to come. The writing about technology, he spends a lot of time talking about the phone and how the narrative that we have now, because we all resent our smartphones so much, is that like this is so annoying because people have so much access to me and I can't escape from my phone, but that the reality before smartphones of if someone had to call you about something important oh or you were waiting for news, you literally had to stay at home with an yes. earshot of a telephone or you would miss the thing. And conversely, if you were trying to avoid a conversation with one person, you would have to just not answer your phone at all mm-hmm. because like, you didn't know who was on the other end, that the idea of just not picking up a ringing phone was unconscionable. Because it could be literally any... It could be, Like, the signal could be from a a cold call to your dad dying. Yes. Like, that's the the range of possibilities. It is the ultimate slot machine. And I think he was talking about some book or TV show that... that, I must have been a TV show that showed, like, a telephone ringing and, like, people are in the house just ignoring it. And he was like, there's no way that this would actually have happened, you know, (laughs) in, like, in the actual 90s. And I was like, oh, that's right. It was annoying being like, I got to stay home because I'm waiting for Jenny to call me so we can figure out which movie our moms are going to drive us to. And um, I don't know that that was better or worse, but remembering that there were trade-offs about living in that time as well. And there was some good overlap with what my old favorite Clive Thompson talked about in Smarter Mm. Than You Think, that every new development in technology or communication or media causes a, like a moral panic of, oh, this is going to make us terrible at communicating or people are never going to leave their houses and talk to each other anymore because now they have radios and then it was now they have TVs and then they have telephones and that like, you know, we still persist in wanting human connection and, and trying to find ways to have it. And it might not be the technology. Um, that's the problem. Yeah, I found it really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I got two questions for you that are wildly um, different in seriousness. <laughs> okay. The first is, speaking of Ross Perot, was that the last <laughs> earnest flat top? Because <laughs> after Ross Perot, I think now flat tops are like Scully and Hitchcock and Brooke like nine nine. They're like a signifier of a certain yes. squareness of, uh-huh. of not just being old fashioned, but being almost willfully retrograde. After Ross, or Ross Perot sort of won, wore it willingly as a. I don't know. No nonsense. It was it was a symbol of no nonsense, and now it's yes. just a symbol of I think no sense. Uh, I think that's right. And Klosterman writes about how like now we think about and talk about third party runs as these like distractions that are often yeah. not serious, and they pull voters from one of the main parties, and how that's its own kind of problem. But like I was ten when Perot ran in ninety two, so I remember it, but not the details. And he writes about like that Perot would use his like take his chunks of airtime that he got for his campaign and spend like 30 minutes on public access tv going through like charts about the economy like he charts was, and buzz cuts that's why he was earnest card for <laughs> Ross Perot. Yeah. what a what a beautiful summer child thinking that the american <laughs> body politic right. would be convinced by a really compelling <laughs> infographic let me show you this spreadsheet you know have you seen means adjusted inflate a wage adjusted inflation it's it's a beautiful dream. I get it, it man. It is. Uh, it's yeah, a, the, he's, he was channeling. I mean, it's kind of like weirdly like Southern salesman Leslie Nope vibes. <laughs> oh, you're Ross right. Perot's you're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's my see. second question is, and this is something I just thought of as we go through, and we maybe can tweak this or, or take it or jettison it. I guess when we talk about a book that 
on Frontless Corner, let's play the whelmed game. Uh, and mm. so you you bring in your expectations for the book, right? Uh-huh. And then you've now you've now completed it. And were you overwhelmed, meaning it beat your expectations? Were you whelmed, meaning it met them? Or were you underwhelmed, meaning that it were that fell below your expectations? Let me guess here. Can I guess? Okay. Yes. Is please. that fun? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were whelmed. Were I was you whelmed, whelmed by the '90s by Chuck Klosterman? Yes, okay. I was whelmed. I think I know what to expect from a Chuck Klosterman book Mm -hmm. and i do now know enough about the 90s (laughs) to have some ideas about it um but yeah i was whelmed it met my expectations and as a bonus has a lot of interesting hey did you know facts so i will share with our listeners the one that i shared with our staff this morning which is that when area codes were first assigned in 1947 they were given the ones with the lowest digits were given to the places with the highest population density on the assumption that the people who lived there would need to make more calls because they either had more social activity or they had busy jobs or whatever all of it and that mattered because phones were rotary dial so if you had to make a bunch of calls they wanted you to have to do less work in how far around that dial you had to make your little finger go seven times to dial a number so i have i've told bob as soon as i read that fact because i've always wondered why like when we lived in chicago we were in the 312 area code but there was like a 737 next to us like how and why are these so different shouldn't there be some sort of method to it there was a method it just didn't it wasn't apparent to us (laughs) manhattan is 202 (laughs) Mm -hmm. or excuse me 212 okay there are no 100 area codes are there i don't it's like the military or something the government i've never i don't know i've never run into a 100 but yeah, anyway, that, I didn't know that. And I'm right? surprised because I did fact. the Bell Labs one. And, and that's where I got my, my one of my favorites of people just saying ahoy into the phone because <laughs> there was no ringers. That's the way to let people know that you were on the other line. You just have to yell into the phone. I did you. also learn that the way that TV lineups got developed, like, you know, must-see TV on Thursday nights, was on the assumption that if you get people in to watch a really compelling one thing, like if you get them in to watch Seinfeld, they'll be too lazy to get up and change the channel. So you Mm. can put something else that's like secondarily compelling after it and you'll still get decent ratings. Yeah, if you didn't have a remote, you had Mm -hmm. to get your butt up there Uh and get it. I think they (laughs) underestimated our laziness. And that is something I learned from TikTok. You'll just scroll. It doesn't matter how hard it is to do something. (laughs) If you have to actively do something, not making people do it matter. So that's yep. interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of phones, it does remind me like the trade-offs. I just this just struck me when we were talking about the the phone hanging off the side. When I was I've got cousins, um there are three of them that live in Chicago. Oh, is you saying Chicago? Yeah. Three of them that live in Chicago and they're like 3 years older than I am. So when I was 10, they were 13, 15 and 17. Or no, yeah, something like that. Okay. And so we were over there for dinner and the phone rang on like a Friday afternoon and it was like Someone had dumped a whale carcass into <laughs> sharks. They came flying on it. They came flying from all the corners of this giant Evanston house, shrieking. Uh-huh. That's my, that's for me. Because here's the thing: one, they wanted to know if it was them, and uh-huh. two, if it was for if it wasn't for them, their sister was going to talk for an hour, yep. which then foreclosed any other mm-hmm. information from their social circle coming in because the phone was the only pipeline you could do. Anyway, I had forget that was I, and I was like, I was. I, largely frightened of people as a, as a tween. And I was like, that, this is, this is a realm of human existence. I do not have the capability of navigating successfully. Yep. That was a very real dynamic. My sister and I are a year and a half apart. And when we were both like in the like full teen boyfriend angst, the Mm. fight over who was going to be tying up the line because my parents very reasonably refused to get a second line. So we could both talk to our boyfriends at the same time, (laughs) which (laughs) I thought was just, just inhuman. Humane <laughs> in the moment, but now uh, I now I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, it it it, make, it makes sense. It almost makes what did that rotary dial question? Nine one one is an odd choice for the rotary dial. We're gonna start with nine. We couldn't do two one one. <laughs> Maybe it like occurred to them too late. But four one one for information. Yeah, interesting. It, it, information is more important than I've been shot right. and I need help. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a Hitchcock movie with a slow shot of someone dialing nine one one and starting with a nine, <laughs> and just sort of watching the whole carriage reset? <laughs> Um, anyway, okay, so whelmed. Anything else on your four corner, front, frontless yes, corner talk about today? Yes, I just finished last night Catherine Schultz's Lost and Found. Oh, I did too. I okay. finished it yesterday. Let's do yes, that. Um, let's... I've got my, well, let's circle back together. I've got one okay. uh, one off. I think my, my quickest read so far this year, both because it's short and it's page to Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson, um, mm. came out this year from mm-hmm. Soho Press, I think I don't have in front of it. Short book, 192 pages. 
it the the setup is I really like the setup though in some of the reviews I don't what I'm choosing to do now is read reviews after I pick something unless okay. I hear that people like it because I don't I don't like to get polluted and I I'm not strong willed enough to ignore it too much, um, but the setup is someone I think about my ages maybe a little bit older is in the airport and see someone there that they knew in college not well but well enough they say hey what's going I want to mm-hmm. catch up and their flight is delayed and so they start catching up and it's delayed for all day and so. The person they meet is called, his name is Jeff, weirdly, so it's going to be weird for me to talk about this. So this guy's name is Jeff Cox, and our unnamed narrator uh, says, okay. you know, I've got a first class. He's very fancy. He's well-dressed. You know, I've got these an extra first lounge pass. You want to join me for drinks and snacks, and we'll, you know, board the plane when we get there. So they're sitting in this first class lounge talking, and Jeff starts to unveil, you know, un- unravel the story of his life, which starts with one day when he was newly out of college, kind of quasi beach bumming in California, he sees someone in the surf, you know, out in the ocean flailing. No one else around. There's no lifeguards. He goes out, brings the guy in. He thinks he's dead, but with his sort of last, you know, kind of melodramatically, I should say, but but effective from a narrative mm-hmm. point of view. Well, kind of his last compression, the dude sits up, coughs out a bunch of seawater. He's bleary eyed just as the life, the real lifeguards and ambulance are showing up because he's been doing it for a couple minutes and someone called. The dude takes one look at him and then sort of passes out and he doesn't, you know, and then the narrator walks off right, mm-hmm. at this point and he can't let it go. The guy who saved the dude's life, like what happened? He's thinking about, you why know, do you he, walk off? Well, he, he takes him into the ambulance and they take oh, him off okay. to the, okay. the hospital. Okay. Right. Okay. So he's, it's, you know, as you might, it, 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 it all makes sense to me. It all okay. felt like okay. he's interested and he's like, what's going on? That would be haunting. Um, it would be haunting. And so he. From the he goes back to the lifeguard because the lifeguard had given him a wool blanket to warm up because it's cold. I mean, LA water is not the warmest thing in the world with a wetsuit, especially certain times of year. So he goes to the lifeguard to give them the wool blanket back, but also to kind of mine for information. Long story short, gets the name, and then he starts kind of watching him. Oh. Stalking is too strong, but it's not also not too strong. And he's a really fancy art dealer in LA. Big hmm. beautiful thing. And he's walking by one day, and he sees there's a, a help wanted sign in the art gallery. So he takes a job. Oh. And I don't want to give anything else away. So this is all in the past tense. And it gets and so you're getting kind of a double narrative, the telling of it, and then the actual story. I don't think either of them are especially... I mean, they're well done. It's well done. But somehow the combination of you're hearing the story, you're in the position of the narrator of the book, listening, you don't really know what's going to happen. I don't read a whole lot of mysteries. It's sort of a mystery, so I really wasn't seeing where it was going. I thought it was great. I thought it was creepy. I thought it was cool. Uh, I really, it was a great first, well, not the first book of the Red of the Year, but it really got my motors running for, oh, yeah, I can still be surprised and have fun. And it's something I kind of randomly picked up. I read the first three pages. This is what I'm doing right now. I go into mm-hmm. Powell's. I read the first three pages of some contenders. There's too many books to read. So unless it's you know something I know I'm going to read no matter what, like Lost and Found, I give it a little shot, and if it doesn't really grab me, I go to the next one. And this one, I was in for three pages, Antoine Wilson, mouth to mouth. I had no expectations, so I guess I have to say I was overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's not really interesting. But yeah, I, re- I really I really liked it. Um, mouth, yeah. not, a, not an author unknown to me has a couple other novels out that I might check out. Interesting. Yeah, I can hear exclamation points in your description of it, and that is an uncommon Jeff O'Neill situation. Yeah. So I, I would also say you were overwhelmed. That sounds There's great. something to be said for an author you don't know, a book that you didn't see anywhere, and it's a, it's a kind of a little gem. That's a good setup for a TV adaptation. I would watch that. I imagined it right away because you want a raconteur, right, mm-hmm. that can really hold the camera, you know, like a Tom Hiddleston type who's telling the story with gestures and find very compelling because – as you might imagine, I'd say there's some there's some Patricia Highsmith DNA to give you some okay. sense of the trajectory of the things. So. I haven't, you know, obviously I haven't read it, but I'm casting Kieran Culkin in this right now. I'm hard on the Kieran uh, Culkin train after. I, yeah, no, I was hearing some other pod I was listening to was trying to cast Kieran Culkin and everything, and that's I think that happens from time to time when a show takes off and someone yeah. really shines. Uh, let's talk lost. Let's do another. Well, we're already in nine forty two. Let's do uh, another sponsor break. Do Lost and Found real quick. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. 
These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay, lost and found. Format. What format did you do? I did it in print. I did an audio. Okay. This was both, I think, both of our most must-reads list, right? Yes, yeah. Did you do any pre-review talk? Did you no. hear anything about Mm-mm. it? Did I you know anything to... about it going in? I knew the, I mean, the, like, sl- the slug line for it is that it's a memoir about losing her father and falling in love in the same year, which I... is both true and also not true enough i think yes <laughs> true but incomplete I, the, the thing that i didn't it took me a while like almost halfway into the book to reckon with is that the subtitle is a memoir mm-hmm. um which i thought it might be about her last book i think was about being wrong so it was more in the airport read self-improvement mm-hmm. hey turns out i call it the turns out category yes. of like here's something yeah. you know i think you know but we're gonna think about it for a while and i was like this isn't really about losing or finding things like, oh, it's a memoir, you dummy. And so that helped me a little bit in the middle. Um, how, how, how to talk. So it's a memoir. Um, Catherine Schultz, a writer at The New Yorker, a really wonderful, I think in a lot of ways, you might add, you might actually pick not her necessarily, but her writing out of central casting for a New Yorker writer. Yes. Do you know what I'm trying to say here? Yes. Yeah. She's yeah. What you th- her writing is what you think about when you think about New Yorker writing. Yes, Let's put it's- it that way quiet and ranging and erudite and I I think really draws from I found it her to be very eclectic in sources Mm -hmm. she's coming from philosophy she's coming from theology she's coming from stuff about nature it's all sort of blended in together really clearly loves words and there's a lot of it I guess the first thing to say about it is that in that slug line of loses her father and falls in love in the same like two-year period is that things don't happen in that order she falls in love first but you don't Mm. know that this is not a spoiler whatever you can google her but the, the the book is in three sections which I did not like try to flip through and see how it was going to be first. So the first section is lost where she's writing about the loss of her father and also what loss means and like some etymologies around loss and where does this word come from and what are we talking about when we talk about the feeling of losing something. Then the found section is about meeting and falling in love with her partner, what it is to find something, how we feel when we've been found, all that stuff. But she has met the partner before she loses her father. Um, which doesn't really matter. I thought it was just a, a really interesting way to construct the story. And then the final section is and, and is about adding and joining and connection and, and what this means. Um, I was really enamored with how she put it together. Yes. That way. I thought that was really thoughtful and surprising. I don't know. I really liked um, it. Yeah. I found myself, if I were going to interview, I found myself wanting to ask her questions about yes. putting the book together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. And, and maybe that's, 
maybe a more I, I'm I'm thrilled to hear you say that because I wasn't sure if that was just weird Jeffness to to think about. <laughs> I mean, because it might just be it's the lost two of and us. found. It goes lost and found, but the order is lost, found, and. Mm-hmm. But the chronological order is found and lost. I mean, if you think yes. about her life. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of thinking, here's the question I asked I like this book. I would say I was whelmed by it. Yes. Rebecca. Um, there are parts of it I'm underwhelmed by, and there's parts of it I'm overwhelmed by, and I think they kind of cancel themselves. So let me take the underwhelmed part first, which is uncharitably... I would say this is ASMR for knowledge workers. Um, <laughs> say more about that. <laughs> do you, is it strike any note of truth even without explaining it? Yeah. I feel comforted just listening yeah. to you describe it. Part, part of it is I did it on audio and it is a very NPR delivery and it's, it's a good delivery. I, en- I really enjoyed it. I, I extended my walks to listen to it. No higher recommendation you can give for an audio book. Right? Like either you will or you won't. And it's so well-written and so smooth in execution. It's just very intellectually comforting without being revelatory. Because the, the insights she comes to are both, I think many of them are true, many of them are beautiful, and many of them are banal all at the same time. I'm not, there's no edge to it at all. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no new idea. I don't. Is there a new idea here, Rebecca? No. Is there? And again, it's a memoir, so maybe that's not what it's about. And I was expecting, I was going to learn something. Like, mm-hmm. and there's a little bit of like how many you know meteors and what it's systemic true. searches and okay, whatever. That's fine. But like, in terms of telling me something I didn't know about love or loss, it was more yeah, and and prettier and with better word choice and lots of commas um, and a positives. And it was, I don't know. So I guess that's why I was, I didn't felt, again, she was, these are people she loves. And she's not, in, she doesn't want to besmirch her, her dear father's name or her, her, who sounds like a wonderful woman's name. The thing I kept finding is it seemed too simple, right? Her positive feelings towards everyone in her life. And maybe my own experience of my life is wrong. <laughs> but the and was, I love her and sometimes I hate her. And it's hard. I lost him, but also he was kind of a loudmouth, you know, like mm-hmm. that was the missing and that I think is more representative of most of our lived experience. This was very, I don't know, I guess it was more comforting than I was expecting. That's I... all I can say. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I guess I want a little more salt. That's all. Yeah, I think it's not messy in the ways that yeah. my lived experience of loss and connection is messy. Mm-hmm. And... I think I had a similar response to it of like, okay, she writes, she uses this phrase a couple of times about remarkable specificity, the remarkable yeah. specificity of her father and the like very particular things that he did and that she loved or the remarkable specificity of this person that she's falling in love with. And I was struck by that because that resonates that resonates for like what do i really love about these people that i spend my life with or what drives me crazy about Mm -hmm. them they are remarkably specific things and these are the ways our connections get built but i didn't feel like there was enough of what those remarkably specific things are Mm -hmm. who are these people and the book is about her and her experience of them but it was I, i also felt like it was just softer than I was hoping for. I don't know if I should have been surprised by how soft it was, knowing what her writing yeah. can be like. I might have had unfair expectations. I also think that when you've read, in a world where H is for Hawk exists... I had the uh, same thought. I thought about Lab Girl and H in for Hawk, yeah, where there is a... Well, you, t- you say it. Yeah, I mean, that. those are... Mount Rushmore Mm. memoirs about loss. And it's unfair to compare anything else to them. But those are in my reading experience now. So when I read a book about loss, I'm also thinking about other books about loss that I've read. And it it didn't have as much uh, teeth or Mm. I I think mess is where I would uh, would come back to. Um, It it was tidier than it feels like the way New Englanders talk about difficult emotions. (laughs) (laughs) There, there There is a certain sense. I mean, and again, I had high expectations because I, I like her writing. And again, maybe I was expecting more teeth because the last big thing I remember her writing was about what if there's a giant earthquake <laughs> off the coast of Oregon and wipes out my city? Right. There are plenty of teeth there. So not afraid to be like, you know, this all could get, end up in, in, in flood and in, in water and death. Um, and again, she's, I think she's writing this for herself. She's writing mm-hmm. it for her family. It's a memoir and a remembrance. And, you know, she's in 
a place in her personal life where um, she feels hopeful about the future at the very end. You know, you get some news that also launches it. I don't mm-hmm. want to spoil it too much. Um, but I think what, if it weren't written so well, it would fall into people die, people fall in love. I think it does transcend that because mm-hmm. of the writing and the learnedness. It's learned with, it's educated without being scholarly, which is a fine line to tread. Yes. On the other hand, she doesn't really reference stuff you're surprised by. It's like, okay, a C.S. Lewis quote. Okay, a Robert Lowell quote. Okay. It's not like, there's not a lot of surprise even in I, the, I don't know, a Robert Frost poem. Okay, sure. Uh, okay. I think it's something you said just really rang that bell for me mm-hmm. that intellectualizing emotions is not how emotions are meant to be experienced yeah. and it's not how we understand them and i think writing about it's not additive maybe is at least at the very yes least. and it's really hard to write about emotions in a way that is that feels real and messy and like you know ashley ford does this in somebody's mm. daughter in a way that's you know remarkable and is also a mount rushmore kind of way of doing a memoir and talking about your own personal experiences but there's a way, I think it distances. I didn't feel like I was feeling a lot of things along with her because the intellectual approach to it yeah. and the learnedness of their writing creates distance from mm. the feeling of it. And it's not a bad thing. I mean, this is a gorgeous book. I was whelmed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Whelmed is right. And we had high expectations. We're Whelmed. Mm-hmm. That's a recommendation. I yeah. think if you yeah. like books and writing and you know you will like this, I guess there is a gear I was... To be overwhelmed, there was another gear, right? I needed mm-hmm. a little of the blood, bones, and butter, no reserve, you know, that kind of, yeah. I don't know, take me someplace I haven't been, mm-hmm. right? And this took me places, I feel like, I th- this is emotional terrain with which I'm familiar. There's a lot of, um, as Emerson says, shocks of recognition, right? Yeah. yeah, that's how I feel. But no, but no, like, oh, huh, I wonder about myself differently mm-hmm. or, or no, and I, yeah, I agree. There was also no like, Oh, that's a way you can feel. Yeah. 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 Well, we're not gonna have time for station 11. We, the frontless corner, we could do, we got to figure this out because <laughs> the whole show could do this, which is fun, but we don't want to do this. So station 11 next week, we'll do a little bit more of that. I'm in the middle of, of to paradise by Hanya Yana Gahara, which I might be for a while. And that's not good or bad. I'm reading it alongside other it's things. It's a long one. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I am a hundred and no, I'm 300 pages in, and I'll say at this point, I'm overwhelmed Okay. at this point. I t- told you this already, but for Great. the listeners out there, yes. call it tease. maybe I'll be done next week. Maybe I won't be. Rebecca, thank you so much. You can email us, podcast at bookriot.com. You can go um, find our winter draft and vote. Still vote. voting will be open until January. Close enough where votes can matter at this point, I will say. Uh, bookriot.com, winter draft. I'm not sure if I said that. Go check out Adaptation Nation. Show notes available, bookriot.com slash listen, and in the uh, episode notes that accompany your podcast player as you listen to this episode there. Rebecca, thank you so much. I look forward to being pleasantly whelmed with you again uh, into the future. Anytime.